Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, This morning we're going to be looking at the story of Samuel. I love Samuel. He is Israel's last judge and he bridges the time of the judges to the time of the kings. He's not often thought of as one of the judges because he's not in the book of judges, but he is a judge and he's also a prophet. He's also a priest. And I'll be telling his story through quite a few chapters, so I just want to start by reading a portion uh, of his farewell address as Israel's judge, because I think it sums up his life and his ministry well. In chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 20 through 25. It says this, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. I chose this passage where Samuel is calling the people to wholehearted devotion to God alone because it is Samuel to the core, as we will see. Samuel was born from a woman wholeheartedly committed to the Lord alone. He lived his whole life devoted to the Lord alone. His first prophecy as a prophet was against priests who were not fully committed to the Lord. When he first becomes a judge, his message is clear. He says, serve the Lord with all your heart. He leads the people to repentance. And and when he steps down later from his role as judge, his message is the same. Serve the Lord alone with whole hearts, turning away from empty things and remembering who he is and what he has done for you. Turn to him. And then Samuel's greatest legacy is the anointing of a wholehearted king. A king described as a man after God's own heart. The king whom one, from whom, whose lineage would one day come the eternal king who gives his people new and whole hearts. The better Samuel, the better David, the better prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. Samuel relentlessly points us toward wholeheartedness. But more importantly, he points us to the one who can make our hearts whole. So let's look at Samuel's story together now. He begins as an unlikely priest, then becomes an unlikely prophet, and then becomes a judge, a priestly and prophetic kind of judge. His story starts with the prayers of his mother, Hannah. She was despairing because she couldn't have any children. But not only could she not have children, but her husband had another wife who had loads of children, and she was always rubbing Hannah's nose in it. 
Once when her family was on their annual pilgrimage to offer sacrifices and worship the Lord, she was just so overcome with despair and wept and prayed silently through her weeping. And she said to God, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. And I hope you see the beauty in this prayer. She says she will give her son to the Lord all the days of his life. She's giving up all of the things that people normally want kids for. She won't get to raise him or enjoy him or benefit from him. She's saying, I want this for you, God. I consider my life yours. And I offer to you my deepest longings. She is the embodiment of the main message that her son will one day carry to the people of Israel, to serve the Lord with all your heart. When she says, no razor shall touch his head, she's referring to the Nazarite vow. Because in Israel, the only way that you could serve the Lord in a priestly way, if you weren't from the tribe of Levi, was if you took the Nazarite vow which was normally a short-term, voluntary thing, but here it's a lifelong vow that Samuel inherits and then honors. Well, when Hannah's praying this prayer, Eli, the priest, is nearby, and he hears and sees Hannah uh, weeping and praying and kind of acting crazy and assumes that she's drunk. But she explains herself to Eli, and he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition." And a little later, she conceives and she gives birth and names her son Samuel. And she follows through on her vow. She takes him to Eli to serve with the priest as long as he lives. And she prays this beautiful prophetic prayer. This, the prayer that later, the prayer poem that later Mary, the mother of Jesus, would be reflecting on when she sang her own song of praise to God when she miraculously conceived. And Hannah sings about the sovereignty of God as he providentially reverses human fortunes and cares for the downcast and the humble. And she ends her song with a surprising and prophetic note, which I think is fitting for the mother of one of the greatest prophets. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And that should make your ears perk up because there has not yet been a king in Israel. And this is the first time in the Bible that anointing refers to royalty. And her son will be the one used by God to anoint these two legitimate kings of Israel. So Samuel becomes an unlikely priest ministering to the Lord with Eli. And then the story from there goes back and forth between the, the rise of Samuel and the decline of Eli's sons. Phineas and Joel are wicked and Samuel grows in favor. The brothers are reproved and Samuel is approved. And then it climaxes in the call of Samuel as a prophet and his first prophecy that he must tell is against Eli and his sons. Samuel, he, be, he becomes not only an unlikely priest, but an unlikely prophet as a young man. The Bible tells us in chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was rare in those days, there was no frequent vision. But one night, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord 
where the ark of God was, and the Lord calls him. Samuel assumes that it's Eli calling him. So he, he hops up and runs to Eli and says, here I am. And Eli says, I didn't call you. Go lay down. And it happens again. And then, and then again. And then Eli realizes what's going on. And he tells Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you again, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening which I love, and I hope it sounds familiar because it's how I lead us in prayer before I preach. But Samuel obeys Eli, and when God calls him again, he says, speak for your servant hears, and God gives him a prophecy. And the prophecy is that he's going to punish Eli's house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. The next morning, After he received this prophecy, Samuel is understandably uh, afraid to speak this to Eli, and Eli insists, and so Samuel tells him. And to his credit, Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And from that day forward, Samuel becomes a great prophet, and the Bible says none of his words fell to the ground. But then as Samuel's growing up, we don't really see him again until chapter 7. So in chapter 4, 5, and 6, he's not there, but it's setting the stage for his rise as the prophetic and priestly judge over Israel. Because in those chapters, the Philistines, they're the enemies of Israel, and they gain great victories over them. To the point that the Israelites bring the Ark of the Covenant out to the battle in order to make sure that God will be on their side. But it doesn't quite twist God's arm the way they hoped it would. And the Philistines still win. And they steal the ark. But God makes the ark such a pain in their side that they ended up sending it back along with some gold. And then that's when Samuel comes back on the scene in a big way in chapter 7. And he has a specific message. Samuel, the prophet, steps up as the last judge of Israel. And he says that this whole situation with the ark and the Philistines has been a wake-up call. He says in verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. And so they listened to him. And, and they do as he says. Samuel, he was pointing out their idolatry. The Israel's, Israelites, they didn't completely forsake God and the worship of Yahweh. They just added to it. They were hedging their bets. They were falling into that enduring lie of the devil that says you need something other than God for your security and your significance. The more blatant form of that lie says that you need something instead of God. But the more subtle form of that lie that we are more tempted toward is you need something in addition to God. That you need that one other thing to make your life good. And Israel believed the lie because they looked at the the people around them and they said, that looks pretty good. That seems to be working for them. And saying, yeah, Yahweh is great, but we can be like these other nations a little bit. Their, Their gods are good too. But Samuel calls the people to a purity of faith, to a single-minded devotion to the one true God. And they respond to his message with repentance. 
And this is him in his prophetic role. But then he steps into his priestly role and he he gathers the nation together to intercede on their behalf. And the people gather and they, they fast in repentance, saying, we have sinned against the Lord. And while they're gathered and fasting and repenting, the Philistines, they try to capitalize on the moment and attack. And the Israelites turn to Samuel and they say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And this, it marks a difference in their hearts from how they responded previously. Whereas before they tried to manipulate God with the ark without ever searching their hearts to see how they sinned. Now, under Samuel's prophetic guidance, they plead for God's humble for God's help with humble spirits of repentance. And Samuel does cry out to God for them. And he offers a burnt offering. And, and he's again acting as priest. And as God receives this offering, it tells us in verse 10 that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And the men of Israel chased them off and struck them down. And Samuel sets up a memorial stone to remember God's help. He calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help. And if you, if you know the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and you ever wondered what it means when it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. Now you know it's, it's saying that any position of success or of growth comes only from the help of God. And we should do well to remember and take, take time and effort to remember how God has helped us. And Samuel says, till now the Lord has helped us. He's quick to attribute all the glory to God alone. And he wants the people to always remember his help. And from that day forward, as long as Samuel was judge, God helped Israel and subdued the Philistines. But when Samuel gets old, many years later, he decides to make his sons judges over Israel, which is not really how it was supposed to be done. Israel had always depended on God alone to raise up judges as they needed them. It wasn't a monarchy that was passed down like the other nations. It seems like Samuel has got a little bit influenced by the surrounding ideas of how nations ought to be run, or perhaps he's peer pressured by the people. Either way, his sons end up as terrible and corrupt leaders, which which makes the people discontent. And they say to Samuel, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge over us like all the nations. Notice that phrase, like all the nations. They preferred the way of the world, the way the world around them worked, over the ways of God for them. Samuel and the Lord, they both see this for what it is, a rejection of the kingship of Yahweh, of God. So God says to Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And Samuel warns them, saying the the king who reigns over them will take and take and take, leading them to cry out, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. But despite Samuel's warnings, Verse 19 says, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations. So the Lord tells Samuel to go ahead and give them what they want. 
God chooses uh, a handsome man named Saul. And Samuel pulls him aside in private and anoints him and then later calls an assembly of all the people to discover who will be king. And I just love how, how Samuel begins that coronation of their new king. It's probably not the kind of speech they were, they were hoping for or wanting. He says, today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord. And then he draws lots, which is kind of like an ancient game of chance of like rolling dice. And the, the lot lands, of, of course, on Saul, God's chosen and appointed king. And there's a few scoffers about Saul, but Saul quickly makes them all look foolish by leading Israel in a great victory against the Ammonites. And the people are so thrilled and enamored with their new king and his victory that they want to put those scoffers to death. But Samuel, ever the voice of reason, says nobody is going to be put to death today. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Again, pointing them back to God. And he leads them in offering peace offerings to the Lord. And so now that there's a king, Samuel is stepping down from his role as judge and he gives a kind of retirement speech. He reminds them in verse 17, Your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And surprisingly, the people recognized their error and, and sin, and they asked Samuel to pray for them. And he tells them again, just as he did when he first stepped up as, as judge. His message is the same. He says, to serve the Lord alone with all your heart. The same message that he preached at the beginning of his time as judge, as judge, he preaches at the end of his time as judge. So let me read you exactly what he says as he closes this farewell speech. It's what I read at the beginning. Because this is an important message for all of us. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, for, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So this, this is an important message for so many reasons. Samuel again and again, consistently telling the people, you are wrong. You are committed to your wrong ideas and desires. You have good arguments for them and you convince yourself with, but you are wrong. It reminds me of this scene in, in CS, one of C.S. Lewis's books called The Great Divorce, which is this strange and dreamlike uh, imagining of an interaction between people from heaven who are solid and people from hell who are ghostly. And one of the solid people named Reginald is speaking to his sister, Pam, who is one of the ghosts. And he tells her a hard truth. 
that the way she lived turned the past into a tyrant. And Pam attempts to manipulate Reginald by sulking. And she says, oh, of course I'm wrong. Everything I say or do is wrong according to you. And Reginald responds, shining with love and mirth so that my eyes were dazzled. But of course, that's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. There's no need to go on pretending one was right. After that, we begin living. Too often we are like Pam, indignant and reluctant to reevaluate the way we've been thinking about things and living. But Samuel is like Reginald, confronting with hard truth as an invitation to live. I'm sure they thought of Samuel as a buzzkill. They're trying to rejoice over their new king and he's telling them about how they're sinning. And they see him as an annoyance, I'm sure, but he remains faithful. He reminds them that they have this pattern, this unhealthy pattern of turning aside after empty things. Things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. The prime example is their desire for a king. What did they, why did they want a king? They wanted the security and status that he would bring to them. They wanted to be like other people. They couldn't see how the prevailing viewpoint that is so popular could be wrong. But Samuel says that seeking security somewhere other than God, it cannot deliver. He says that seeking status outside of God will not profit. He says that seeking the way of the world is empty. It's a broken cistern that cannot hold water, as one other prophet would say. Now, I was thinking as as I preached this, that the devil has tricks up his sleeve to keep us from really hearing this message. A message like this. One one trick that he has is encouraging us to paint with a broad brush so that we can't see nuance. Because that's often how we're wrong. In subtle and nuanced ways, we have these big, broad arguments that are true at times. But we can be wrong in nuanced ways like how we apply them to certain situations or why we apply them or our hearts as we apply them. Let me show you what I mean. From this exact situation that Samuel was facing, let me argue from the side of Israel, as if I were them arguing against Samuel. Ready? Okay, let me get into character. Listen, Samuel, God himself from his own law, I'll remind you, said that Israel could have kings. God's law actually made provision for a king. Did you know that? Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 15. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. This isn't going against God's law, Samuel. It's fulfilling it. We came to you, too, after all, God's prophet. We didn't just go do it ourselves. Also, you put sons over us that were wicked men. Do you want us to just be ruled by wicked men that aren't even anointed by God? Seems to me like we're in the right. And you just need to shut up and give us our king. And scene. Pretty convincing, right? That's because they weren't wrong in their broad arguments. They were wrong in more subtle ways. They they didn't want a king the way Hannah wanted a son. 
Hannah wanted a son for God's glory alone. They wanted a king for their own glory. It takes humility and openness to see the subtlety of one's own sin. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But the other trick that the devil has up his sleeve when we hear Samuel say that the way of the world is wrong is we think of other people's viewpoints and sins and we say, yeah, without ever evaluating how wrong ideas have crept into our own hearts. We like how Samuel steps on toes because we assume it's not our toes he's stepping on. But if the stories through the time of Judges teach us anything, it's that the world has a way of sweeping even God's people up into its current and that we are in continual need of repentance and humility before our God. The people here were doggedly and defiantly pushing for their king to be on the throne even though God had different plans. We don't have to look very far to see parallels today. God wanted them to be primarily focused on him. He wanted them to look to his lordship in their lives, even though it was counterintuitive. As Samuel says, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. He's, he's saying, remember all that he's done for you. Fix your eyes and your heart on his glory and his grace. Because he is not empty like the other things you chase. He is full and overflowing. Samuel, he's not trying to drag them down. He's trying to lift them up by calling them to let God and God alone be the driving force of all that they are. Saul, as king, would prove to not live up to that calling. But again, it's, he fails in subtle and seemingly defensible ways. Here's what happens to Saul. He was told by God to destroy the Amalekites and everything they owned, and he obeyed. For the most part, Saul defeated them, but he spared the best of what they owned, saying that he planned on offering them to the Lord. And when Samuel confronts him, Saul defends himself. He says, I did obey what God told me to do. I just tweaked it in a, in a way that seems pretty defensible. I mean pretty, I mean, pretty understandable. Even as I read this story and, and the other stories where Samuel confronts people, really, I find the way that, that I think about things to be a little at odds with the way that God thinks about things. I see what Saul did, and I think it seems pretty reasonable. I might have even done the same thing if I was in his shoes. And one of the things that God is teaching us, I believe, is that our intuitions are not trustworthy. Our intuitions about wrong and right are skewed and more wrong than we think they are. When I was talking to Audrey about this and I told her what I was thinking, she said, well, then what do we do? <laughs> if we can't trust ourselves, how do we make decisions? Wouldn't we just drive ourselves crazy? And I love how she always just brings things down to brass tacks whenever I'm being overly conceptual. And her question, it made me think, if we really believe that our intuitions are untrustworthy, yeah, I think it would make us a little uncertain at times. But wouldn't it, that also make us quicker to listen? 
and slower to speak? Wouldn't it also make us humble and keep us from boasting? If I believed I couldn't fully trust myself and how I think about things, it would make me cling to the word of God in desperation, knowing I need God's wisdom to shape me. I might even memorize it. We would surround ourselves with others who, are, who trust Jesus and constantly want them to be speaking into our lives. If we didn't trust ourselves, then we might pray more with David. Lord, search me and know me and show me if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. We would pray all the time. In other words, we might drive ourselves a little crazy at times, but that craziness might look like living more like Christians. It's Samuel's message. Devote yourself wholly to the only one who is completely trustworthy. Samuel responds to Saul's self-defense by delivering a prophetic poem that gives us penetrating insight. It's, it's found in 15... Uh, Chapter 15, verses 22 through 23. And in that poem, I won't read the whole thing, but he says that to obey is better than sacrifice. And he says, for presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. That is so important. Let me say it again. Samuel says to Saul that his presumption is like idolatry. We are so presumptuous. We are. We presume that we can twist the truth just a little to make things more convenient or profitable. We presume that we can be in a romantic relationship with an unbeliever because they're nice and God might use us to make them a Christian. We presume that if, if someone does something really bad to us, then it's okay and understandable to hate them. We presume that the ends justifies the means. If we need to partner with immoral people to make good things happen, that's just fine. We presume that being rude and unkind is acceptable if people have it coming. We presume that our time and possessions are our own, so we don't, if we don't feel like going to church or being hospitable, that's okay. We presume that divorce is acceptable if we're not in love anymore or if it's really hard. We presume that if something makes us happy, it can't be that bad. We presume, like Saul, that if we are going to try to honor God with something, then that automatically makes it right. Like holding up a Jesus save sign while rioting. But Samuel says our presumption is idolatry. Because we elevate our thoughts to hold equal or more weight than God's, making our own feelings and thoughts idols. And God knows that idols are empty and his thoughts are far better than ours, even when we have trouble seeing it at times. And Samuel ends that prophetic poem by saying to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Samuel is grieved. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't say, told you so, guys. He's grieved over that fact. But God comes to him in his grieving and he says, How long will you grieve over Saul? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. 
So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, to Jesse, whom Pastor Tim told us last week is the grandson of Ruth from the book of Ruth. And Samuel looks at his oldest son and, and he thinks, that's the king. But God speaks to Samuel and says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God had chosen Jesse's youngest son, a shepherd named David. And the Lord told Samuel to anoint him. So Samuel takes his horn of oil and pours it on David's head. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. He would eventually become king of Israel. The king, as I've said, from whom the eternal king would one day come, who would be the anointed one, which is what Messiah and Christ means. Jesus, the son of God, our judge and king who leads us and loves us by calling us to repent and believe in him with our whole hearts. Jesus, like Samuel, would be a prophet and a priest who would give us a word from God and make a way to God, who himself would be the word from God and the way to God, who would be a prophet like Samuel who called us to wholehearted devotion to God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And who would model this for us by giving his very life? Because like Samuel, Jesus was also a priest. And his offering for our sins was himself. Dying on the cross in our place for our forgiveness to make us right with God. And just as Samuel said that he would never give up on praying for the people of Israel, even when they sinned, the Bible tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the ultimate priest. He's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate king. He is the better Samuel, the better David. Just as Samuel said that he would instruct Israel in the good and the right way, Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. Just as Samuel is always directing their attention to God, like with the Ebenezer, the stone of help, as, and as he told Israel in his farewell address, consider what great things God has done for you. Jesus invites us to consider him and to look to him and what great things he has done for you. And let that be the beat of your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, purify our hearts. Search us and know us and show us if there be any grievous way within us. May we turn to you fresh this morning and every morning, holding with open hands everything we have to you. Give us grace to repent and turn from empty things and to remember your help and be humbled by it and to consider the great things you have done for us and be grateful to you and compelled by your goodness. We pray in the name of our prophetic and priestly King Jesus. Amen.